following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 4, this morning I'll be reading the first 26 verses of this chapter. And as we read God's Word, I do want to remind you once again that this is indeed the Word of God. It is the truth. It endures forever. And it is a life-giving, precious gift. It's my hope and prayer that we will all receive it as such this morning. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let us pray. Father, may you pour out your spirit upon us that we would behold 
the glory of Jesus Christ like never before. And we would bow down and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you want me to bring the wood box in? That's the question I asked my wife. Seems like an innocent enough question. We have uh, owned three homes, or maybe I should say better, we've had mortgages on three homes. And in every home, we've had a wood stove to help keep the home warm over the winter months. And so we have this wood box that we bring in just for those winter months, and we set it by the wood stove and fill it with firewood. So it was one fall, and it was starting to get a little bit colder, and, and I was thinking... You know, what's, uh, what's an item on the honeydew list that I can actually do and get crossed off? Well, I can bring in the wood box. It should only take five minutes, and I'll get something done and maybe earn some brownie points in the meantime. So should I, do you want me to bring in the wood box? Well, oh, how naive I was. <laughs> As if this would only be a five-minute job. As if I could just bring it in and put it in the same place we had last year, which seemed to be a perfectly good place to me, and be done with it. But no, see, my wife saw this as an opportunity, an opportunity to redecorate the entire room. So what I saw as a five-minute job turned into a whole afternoon affair as we moved every piece of furniture, every table, every chair, the reclining sofas, which are not light, by the way. Even the stuff on the walls had to be moved now because the furniture wasn't where it used to be. And that's what happened on that day as we rearranged the room. That simple question, you want me to bring in the wood box, which I don't know if I've asked it again, but it led to the redecoration of the entire room. But you see, the way Amy viewed that room is the way that God views a life. He loves to redecorate, to make new, to make beautiful. And he is so committed to this remodeling process in your life, that he has given the life of his own son to make it happen. He wants you to be just like Jesus. And we heard that in our assurance this morning from Romans 8, where we're told that God is working all things for the good of his people so that we might be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're told that we become like Jesus as we behold his glory, as we see him for who he is and what he is like. And so this morning, it's, it's my hope that we will behold the glory of Christ together so that not only will we see who Jesus is and believe in him and trust him and love him and delight him, in him, but that also we will be transformed by him and become like him. Specifically this morning, I want us to behold the glory of Christ and all of his grace. The Bible says in John 1 that the word became flesh. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So we're going to look at that. Full of grace. But what is grace? I just want to briefly discuss this as we get started with one verse one quote and uh, one simple definition. So what is grace? You might be familiar with 2 Corinthians 8 9 where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. One pastor put it this way, God's grace 
is his active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. God's active favor bestowing the greatest gift upon those who have deserved the greatest punishment. It's the grace of God that enables us to say that we were once an enemy of God, but now we are a beloved child of God. Only because Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, bore the wrath of God in our place. And if we want just maybe a simple interpersonal definition, I would say it this way. Grace is doing good for someone when there is no compelling reason to do so and every reason not to. Well, to behold the glory of Christ this morning, I want us to look at how Jesus demonstrated grace in his encounter with the Samaritan woman here in John chapter 4. And as we do this, we'll see three things. First, we'll see that God plans to be gracious to his people through Jesus. We'll see that God pursues people in grace through Jesus. And we will see, finally, that God graciously gives new life through Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So first, God plans to be gracious to his people through Jesus. We're told here in John 4 that Jesus was headed to Galilee. And verse 4 says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. That simple statement says a lot. You know, we ask, on his way from Judea to Galilee, did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Was that the only way to go? If Jesus pulled out his smartphone and opened up his Google Maps app and he put in Samaria, would only one route pop up? And the answer is no. There was another way. There was a way around Samaria. You might think of it this way. If if we wanted to go from here to Willow Street, would we have to go through Lancaster City? And the answer is no. That might be the fastest way, but there's a way around. And in fact, some of you might even take that way around. Many people would prefer not to drive through the city. Maybe they don't like the traffic. Maybe they don't like it, especially now with all the construction that's going on right down in that direction. Or maybe some people prefer to go around because they have prejudice against people that might live in the city. Did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Not in the sense that there was no other way around. Yes, it was the shortest. Yes, it was most direct. Yes, it was the quickest way to go. But many strict Jews would probably have already programmed into their little GPS, not avoid highways, but avoid Samaritans. Many of them would only go through Samaria if they were in a hurry. So why did Jesus, why did this Jewish man have to pass through Samaria? And I believe the answer is because he was planning to be gracious to this woman. We didn't read this far, but if you continue to read uh, down to verse 34, you'll see that the disciples come back. They had gone away to get food. They come back. They've brought the food, and they start to ask if, if Jesus has eaten yet. And then they encourage Jesus to eat, and he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see, it was God's plan for Jesus to meet this woman that day. This is what God wanted Jesus to do. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he was doing his father's work. God had planned to be gracious to this woman, and Jesus was fulfilling that plan. Now, try to put yourself in the woman's shoes for a moment. You know, for this woman, maybe this day started like so many other days. She had to go to the well in the heat of the day around the noon hour. She's probably tired, weary, not just from the heat, maybe from work, but 
maybe also from the shame of her sin, from the brokenness of her life, that no one has faithfully loved her. No one has taken care of her. Maybe she didn't even want to be at, that well, at the well that day. But Almighty God had a plan for her, to be gracious to her, a plan that would change her life forever. You see, God had planned to be gracious to this woman, and God has planned to be gracious to you. Here in John 4, God was working his plan to be gracious to the Samaritan woman through Jesus. And God is working his plan to be gracious to you today as well. And you may not see it. You may not understand it. Like the woman, you may be tired. You may be weary. You may be discouraged. You may not feel like going to the well. But God has thought it through. How to best be gracious to you and work out his many good purposes. Many of which we may never know. But think about that for a moment. Our God is infinitely wise. He knows all things. He knows all your days before there's even one of them. He knows the words that are going to come out of your mouth before you even say them. No one has been his counselor. No one has been his teacher. No one has revealed truth to him. He knows all things. He knows what is best for you. He's infinitely loving. We look to Romans 8 and we see that at the cross, God shows that since he gave his greatest gift, He will also graciously give us all other things. He loves you and he wants what is best for you. And our God is infinitely powerful. He made the heavens and the earth by his great power and his outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for him. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He's infinitely powerful. He is able to provide you with what is best. And in Jeremiah, God tells us that he has made an everlasting covenant with his people, that he will not turn away from doing good to them, and that he delights to do good to them. He rejoices in doing good to them. God has planned to be gracious to you through his son, Jesus. This brings us great comfort, but it's not intended to stop there. It's intended to lead to action because God has also planned to be gracious to others through you, through his people. God wants his grace to extend to more and more people through you. So as you become more and more like Jesus, you also will plan, will think about, will consider how you can be gracious to people. How you can do good to them when there's no compelling reason to do so and every reason not to. And you do this as a way of showing your gratitude for God's grace to you. As a way of showing the world what God is like so they can see, they can know, they can experience how great he is. So who is one person in your life today that you will plan to be gracious to this week? That you can love, that you can serve, that you can do good to, that you can tell about Jesus Maybe you'll think about that person today. Maybe you'll even write that name down this morning. Maybe you'll pray for them. And this this afternoon, I would encourage you to take a few moments and actually plan how you can be gracious to them in the name of Jesus. God has planned to be gracious to his people through his son. The second thing we see in this encounter here is that God graciously pursues people through Jesus. This really is an amazing exchange 
between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we, ought, we need to realize that this woman really represents us. She represents all of mankind and our sin, our brokenness, our separation from God. But this encounter is amazing in so many ways, especially when you consider the expected way and the accepted way that any other Jewish man would have treated this Samaritan woman. First of all, as we mentioned before, many Jewish men would not even be in Samaria. They would avoid it altogether. They had such animosity against the Samaritans. They looked down on them so much that some of them would not even go through Samaria. And if they did pass through, they would do it as quickly as they could. And on their way through, they would not even look at a Samaritan woman, let alone greet them or talk to them as Jesus did. If we would read a little little farther in John 4, verse 27, when the disciples come back, it says, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. You can see that. They weren't used to that. They weren't used to a rabbi talking to a woman. Strict rabbis would forbid other rabbis from even greeting a woman in public, let alone having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. A popular prayer in that day was, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Can you imagine? One rabbi wrote, Let no man eat the bread of the Samaritans, for he who eats their bread is as he who eats swine's flesh. Such animosity. John Piper helps us feel the, the force of this with this illustration. He says, If we really want to feel the force of what's going on here, of what Jesus did, we can simply compare it to life here in the United States about 50 years ago. Some of you might remember that time. A time when places, many places had separate water fountains based on the color of your skin. So you could go into some places and there would be a water fountain marked white and there would be one separate from it marked colored. And can you imagine anything more demeaning than to build your entire plumbing system around the unwillingness to drink from the same fountain? So what is Jesus doing here? He is standing by the fountain marked colored. And he is watching, in a sense, a black woman fill her water bottle. And then for all to see, for all to witness, he's saying to her, can I have a drink? Not from your fountain, from your water bottle. In verse 9 it says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And what that literally means is this, Jews do not use together with Samaritans. They do not use the same dishes that Samaritans have used. And the woman understands this because she basically says to Jesus, you can't be asking to use the same bucket as me. That just is not done. But Jesus is clearly crossing, reaching across these barriers here. He is graciously pursuing this woman. So what we see here is that God graciously pursues people in the midst of their sin to free them from their sin. What he's teaching us is this. You don't have to straighten up your life first. You don't have to clean up your act. You don't have to have it all together. This woman certainly didn't. Jesus saw into her heart. He saw her sin and he pursued her anyway. Let's let's read it again. Verse 16, this encounter. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
This woman had had five husbands. Now, what does that mean? She's had incredible sorrow and pain in her life. It is not likely that she's been widowed five times. What is more likely is that this is an adulterous, promiscuous woman. And in fact, we know for sure that she's in the midst of an adulterous relationship right then. As Jesus conveys to her that he knows the man she's with now is not her husband. But Jesus pursues her anyway. And he never comes back to this issue of adultery. Did you notice how quickly the conversation moved on? He doesn't go anywhere with it. So he didn't bring up this issue to condemn her or to rehearse the details. Instead, he brought it up to reveal her need of him, her need for a savior, to expose the thirst that she didn't even know she had. Jesus is graciously pursuing this woman. You know, in the eyes of any other rabbi, this was an unacceptable relationship. It just did not happen. A Jewish rabbi would never talk to a woman like this, to a Samaritan woman, to an adulterous woman. She would be condemned. She would be unclean. She would be avoided. But our gracious God reaches across all those barriers. Where others would condemn and avoid, he pursues. He graciously pursues this woman through Jesus so that she can be forgiven and be with him forever in heaven. Jesus is graciously relational here, and he's graciously intentional. This is not just happening. This was planned. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus has to go through Samaria Because he is seeking this woman's salvation. And what makes this pursuit so gracious is that this woman deserved to be condemned. There was nothing in her that compelled Jesus to be gracious to her. There was every reason for him not to be gracious to her. She was a sinner. She deserved condemnation. There were plenty of reasons for him to overlook her, to avoid her, but instead He pursues her. He goes after her. He seeks her out. He doesn't give up. And he is doing all this so that she can have new life. All the while knowing that it will mean his own death. You see, this is is not just a racial barrier that he crosses. Not just a cultural barrier that he crosses between the woman and Jesus. There's a sin barrier. And that sin barrier will cost Jesus his life. It's not just that he will have to suffer a painful death on the cross, but that he will have to actually suffer for her sin, the punishment, the wrath of God that she deserves for her sin will be poured out on Jesus. He will be the one that is treated like a promiscuous adulteress so that she can be forgiven by God, eternally loved, and adopted into his family forever. And Jesus knows that. He knows that this woman, he knows that you, he knows that I, he knows that we do not deserve his love or his grace or his friendship, but he pursues us anyway. He is graciously relational and he's committed to doing good to this woman and to us when there is no compelling reason to do so and every reason not to. God graciously pursued this woman through Jesus 
and he is graciously pursuing you today. Jesus saw into her heart and he sees into your heart. He knows all your past and he knows all your present. There's nothing that is hidden from him. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 4. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus knows all your sin. You know, you may be here this morning, and perhaps your sin is the same as the woman. Maybe it's sexual immorality, any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Or maybe it's anger or pride or the simple disobedience and rebellion of us all. But it doesn't matter what your sin is. The grace that God offers is greater than your sin if you will only turn to Jesus. At this moment, in this encounter, God in Jesus means for you to feel graciously pursued. He's pursuing you in the midst of your sin to free you from its penalty and from its power, from its condemnation and from its grip so that you can have new life. The question is, will you come to him? You know, many of you have experienced this already in your lives and you understand that you've been pursued when you were dead in your sin, when you were an enemy of God. Nikki Arnold is one of the beloved members here at Westminster and she's written a book about how God has been gracious to her. And you know the title of that book? Pursued. She understands what God has done. I've told the story before of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, and she's written a book as well called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a lesbian feminist who has had her life transformed by the grace of Jesus. So now she loves Jesus and she's married to a Christian pastor of a conservative church. But in her book, she tells the story how God graciously pursued her largely through the patient, loving friendship of a pastor and his wife and their local church. Because that's what God's people do. When they've experienced this pursuing race, they in turn pursue others because they want everyone to know the glorious grace of Jesus. So the question is, will you actively pursue people today? Will you pursue people who are different from you? Who may have wronged you? Will you intentionally do good to them when in themselves there's no compelling reason to do so and every reason not to? Because that's what God has done for you. So that they can see how gracious God is. Who is one person that God might graciously pursue through you? Through his spirit dwelling in you this week. Well, the third thing we see here in this encounter is that God graciously gives new life through Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Because the whole point of this encounter, the whole point of John chapter 4 and of the entire book of John is so that this woman and the people of her town and so that you today can see that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that by believing in Him, you might have life in His name. That's what this encounter is all about, that she would believe in Jesus, that she would have life instead of death, because up to this point, this woman's life has been characterized by death. She's dead in sin. She's a slave to her passions. 
Her marriages have been characterized by death over and over and over again. Broken promises, broken covenants. And Jesus comes to free her from that death, to offer her life, to heal her brokenness. And so in this encounter, he begins by offering her living water. And he's not talking about liquid water, but he's talking about himself, his spirit to come live in her to bring her eternal life. He's trying to get her to understand that what she is really thirsty for is himself. He is what she's thirsty for. That to know God personally through Jesus is what she's been longing for. That's what she has been looking for in all these pursuits of men. It's a thirst for God. That her thirst for God is just as real as her physical thirst. One pastor said it this way, the soul's deepest thirst is for God himself who has made us so that we can never be satisfied without him. But this woman, like us today, is slow to understand. And so she brings up Jacob. After all, Jacob, her ancestor, he made this well. He drank from it. Are you greater than Jacob? She asked Jesus. And the answer is, yes. He is greater than Jacob. Because Jacob is just a man. And Jesus created Jacob. And Jesus is the living, eternal God in her presence. And we have a thirst. And he has living water. He has what we need to live. And if you will drink, if you will believe on him as your ever-satisfying treasure, you will live forever. Well, apparently, she's still not quite grasping what he's saying. She says, okay, give me this water so I don't have to come to this well anymore. And this is when Jesus brings up the issue of her husband. And do you see what he's doing? He brings it up again, not to condemn her, but so that his spirit can convict her, to help her understand her sin, that she has been looking to things other other than Jesus to satisfy her soul thirst, her longing for God. And so Jesus is graciously showing her the sin of her heart so that she can recognize her need for a Savior, her need for Jesus. It appears maybe this made her a little uncomfortable. She, she kind of tries to change the subject. This is when she brings up this question of worship. You know, where should we worship? And, and Jesus answers by telling her, it's not about where you worship, it's about who you worship. She has been worshiping men. She's been worshiping sex. She's been worshiping her own desires. But now, perhaps, the light begins to dawn. The spirit begins to work. She starts to think about the Messiah, the Christ. The one that God promised in his word would come to rescue his people, to save his people from their sins, to lead them into the truth. And maybe she's even wondering, could this Jewish man standing here before me, could he be the Messiah? She says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And the truth is, the reality is, yes, This Jewish man standing before you is indeed the Messiah. And Jesus had graciously planned to meet this woman that day. He had pursued her, and now he graciously offers her new life in him. Verse 26, he says, I who speak to you am he. So we see this unfolding miracle. As this adulterous woman, whom no man had faithfully loved, She receives new life in Christ and through Christ the faithful love of a heavenly father for all eternity. The woman received amazing grace that day. 
she realized that though she was far worse than she ever imagined, at the same time, she was far more loved than she ever dared dream. Because of Christ, by God, the God of the universe, through Jesus, this Jewish man, the Messiah, God in the flesh. So she went to the well to get water that day. But what she got was far, far better. And she drank deeply of the grace of God and her life was transformed. And then through her, it spread to her community. If you read the rest of John chapter 4, you see she goes back to her town. In verse 29, she says, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they come out, and they talk to Jesus, and they encourage him to stay, and he stays with them two days and speaks to them. And then verse 42 says, They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. God graciously gives new life. Through Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And I want to encourage you today to receive the grace that Jesus is offering you. Do you realize that right here, this morning, in this place, this could be your moment at the well with Jesus? Remember, these were written. This story was written. And you're hearing it today. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that by believing you might have life in his name. So Jesus is present with us this morning by his spirit, speaking through his word, offering you life no matter what your sin is. Whatever brokenness you have in your life, whatever struggle, whatever sin you have, if you are willing, if you are only willing, Jesus will take it for you. If you will only admit the seriousness of your sin against a holy God and your inability to save yourself from it, Jesus will save you. He will take the punishment for your sin and he will clothe you with his righteousness. He will take your death and he will give you his life. So what have you been looking to to satisfy you, to give you meaning? It will only leave you empty. It will only leave you thirsty again. The psalmist says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be next year, but you'll have to keep going back to that well. And it will eventually run dry. It wasn't meant to give you life. It wasn't meant to satisfy you. Only Jesus was, and only Jesus can, and only Jesus will if you come to him. So won't you go to him today? It makes no difference where you've been. If you come to him today, he will give you a new life and a new tomorrow. See, Jesus is offering you forgiveness. He's offering you new life, unending grace today as a free gift. And if he offers his gifts free of charge, at great cost to him, but free of charge to you, why not take them? Well, maybe this morning you've already done that. And if that's the case for you, I want to just encourage you to rest in the grace that Jesus gives you today. He is with you and he will not leave you. And he is still planning to be gracious to you. And he is working out that plan in every circumstance. The psalmist says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. 
Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And he will not. He will complete the work that he has begun. And he still graciously pursues you every day. And the new life that he has given you in Christ can never be taken away. His grace remains greater than your sin. The Bible says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The Bible is filled with amazing, overwhelming, unbelievable statements of grace. And the only way we can say they are true is because we look at the cross and we see who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And one of them is found in Hebrews chapter 9. And if you've received God's grace, you can rest in this and you can delight in this because in Hebrews 9 it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Why? The Bible says not to deal with sin. He's not coming back to deal with your sin again because he's already dealt with it. He dealt with it at the cross. It's been taken care of, so it's no longer an issue. It's no longer a problem. Instead, he's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that not good news for us today? Jesus is coming again to save you, to take you with him so that you can behold his glory face to face. So finally, let me just encourage you to think of his grace until you cannot help but speak of him and be like him. Think of his grace until you can't help but speak of him and be like him. You see, Christ is not some model that we watch from a distance, that we watch from afar, and then in our own strength we try to emulate him and try to be like him. No, he comes close. He treats us with grace. So we actually experience his grace. By by being gracious to us, Jesus teaches us up close and personal what it means to be gracious to others. So think of his grace until you can't help but speak of him and be like him until you are gracious to others. I want to close by looking at 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a great summary of God's grace where it says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see here that our relationship with God is not based on our performance, but it's based on the performance of Jesus Christ. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Pastor John MacArthur summarizes the verse this way. Even though Jesus Christ had never sinned, God treated him as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe. Though in reality, he never committed a single one. And why did God do this? So that you and I could become the righteousness of God in him. That is the gospel. That is the grace of God, the grace of Christ's substitution. So let me ask you a few more questions. Are you yourself righteous and holy? No. Are you perfectly sinless in yourself? No. Are you as righteous as Jesus Christ? No. Are you as holy as God? No. Does God treat you as if you are? Yes. God treats you today, if you are trusting in Christ, as if you never did anything except for the righteous deeds of Christ. 
Because at the cross, he treated Christ as if he had committed all your sins. Beloved, think about that. Think about that until you can't help but speak of Jesus and be like him, full of grace. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. And we pray today that you would give us a deep understanding of it and that our lives would truly be transformed. May Jesus Christ be praised. May anyone that we come in contact with be treated with the same grace that you have shown to us so that the world would know how great you are and your glory would spread and people would worship you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.